thought that uh, 34 years ago when my wife gave birth to our first son that uh, he would ever write a song that we would sing in a church that I pastored. Uh, our oldest son, Matthew, actually wrote that song. And um, kind of a cool thing for a parent to, uh, to enjoy. That means Patty did everything right. Thank you. I appreciate your confidence. Once again, you do not cease to amaze me at uh, the humanity that I often display. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about conflict this morning. We could already right now say there's a little conflict in here. You know, you've, you've been chiding me already. I mean, I, I, feel, I feel threatened and you amen that. We've got, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I feel the pain and the sympathy. See, the anger is starting to rise up. No. Um, conflict is inevitable. Conflict is unavoidable. I don't care how strong a relationship you have in your marriage or how strong a relationship you have with your friends or your coworkers or the people that you go to school with. There's going to be a time in which they're going to rub you the wrong way. They're going to say something maybe unintentionally or do something intentionally that's going to sort of going to cause an emotion to rise and you're going to feel those emotions they begin to rise and as a result of that there's going to be a tension, there's going to be a conflict and the Bible has a lot to say about conflict and there are three responses to conflict that we always give. Three. We don't give them all three at the same time but there are three responses to conflict. First of all, there's, uh, there's a the response of flight. Whenever there's a conflict and there's a tension and there's a disagreement, there are some of us in this room who run. And the reason we run is because we don't like conflict. We don't like to address the issues that we have. We want to just bury everything, put it under the carpet, under the rug, and leave it there, let it lie, and not deal with it. And so, therefore, we just kind of coexist with it and let it happen. That's called flight. Some of us do that in this room. There's another reaction to conflict, and that is fight. Some of us get our dukes up, man, and our emotions rise, and our tongues start to go, and our actions display the emotions that we have. And, and we are catastrophic in leaving dead bodies everywhere, but we're fine. Those are the fighters. But those two reactions to conflict are not the best. There's a better way to react to conflict, and that is a reaction in which we follow the standard of God. It is, it is something that is friendly for us. Conflict is a friendly thing. It's not to be seen as a bad thing. It can be a friendly thing because whenever we have conflict, and we're, we're going to have it because, remember, it's unavoidable. We're going to have conflict. The way we deal with it can actually strengthen the relationship. It can dissipate somewhat the dysfunction in the relationship. And so conflict can be our friend if it's dealt properly and handled rightly. And we're going to take a look at a conflict that happened in a family. And the title of our, our study this morning is Family Feud. Every family feuds. Now I know my mom and dad are here, and I can tell you that in our family we never had a family feud. I can remember sitting in the back seat with my brother and sister, and we would argue over who was in whose space. We used to take the, the, the Willis Jeep that we had on the back of the, of, the, of the Willis Jeep had lines in it, and we had the lines divided so that no one would get in anybody's space. That's what we call conflict resolution. Didn't work out too well. But uh, I've watched my grandchildren now, the five-year-old twins, engage in conflict. While they love each other deeply, sometimes the tension escalates and there's conflict. Because somebody does something they don't like or says something 
that hurt or whatever, or they won't give me what I want. And so there's tension and there's conflict. And when conflict happens, there's an emotion that often escalates the conflict, and it's an emotion called anger. Anybody know about anger? Now turn to your neighbor and say, he's not talking about me, he's talking about you. Because I never get angry. Well, we have a confessional in the, in the back over here, and I'm the priest, and for those of you who just lied, I'll take the confessions in a minute. I've always wanted to be a Catholic priest and pretend like I don't know who it was. When Ron would come into the confessional, I don't tell Ron that I know who he is, and I could listen to all of his sins and go, aha, I know the kind of sinner that he really is. But, uh, you know, in conflict, we can often become angry. And if we're not careful with anger... It can escalate to the point that it can be very destructive, if not very deadly. And the Bible has a lot to say about how to deal with anger. And there's a proper way to deal with anger, and there's an improper way to deal with anger. And when it is dealt with improperly, then the end result is destruction and death. It may not be physical death, but it can be the death of a relationship. It can be death of a reputation. It can be death of a career. And so anger is a very strong emotion, and we need to very, very, very much guard that emotion because if we're not careful, anger can swell up, and we can let the lid off, and it can react and act in ways that will be so destructive in these relationships that we treasure that, that the consequences are unavoidable. So I want to take it a passage that is probably very familiar to you, a passage in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, four, I'm sorry. Verse 3 through verse 16, but we're going to deal with verse 1 and 2 as well. But I, I want us to take a look at how to guard against anger's destructive influence in conflict and in my relationships. And I want us to take a look at, at a relationship that escalated between two brothers, Cain and Abel. And as a result of the anger that Cain felt toward his brother Abel, it escalated to the point that it was so destructive that it caused him to actually murder his brother. So let's take a look at the commencement of the beginning of the anger of the conflict. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Let's stop there. Now, here we have a description of the commencement of the family, the beginning of the family. Uh, it's, it's Adam and Eve and now Cain and Abel, and they have given birth to two sons, and they have fulfilled the promise that God gave them when he expelled them from the garden. He said that they would, they would have a seed and they would conceive and they would bear children, and now this is the promise being fulfilled in that God is blessing them with two sons, Cain and Abel. We take a look at the text and we see that there's a communion that took place between Adam and Eve. It describes Eve as his wife. And it's always important for us to understand that before we conceive and bear children, that marriage must precede those births. That's how God ordained it. And it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, two people who loved each other, a man and a woman came together. They consummated that relationship after the betrothal period. And as a result of that conception, they gave birth to two beautiful sons. Notice one is Cain and one is Abel, two sons. And notice then the confession that Eve brought, broadcast, having delivered the first, and I believe she gave it also with the second, she gave glory to God for the help that was needed in burying these children. Now, how many women in here would say, I'm so glad that God helped me in childbirth? Can I get a witness, ladies? Were it not for the Lord, you would not have made it through carrying the child and birthing the child. And she gave an acknowledgement to God. She gave him glory and praise and acknowledged her, her, her insufficiency and acknowledged the sufficiency of her God. 
That's the commencement of the family, the beginning of the family. But let's take a look at the beginning of the feud. I'm, I'm convinced that it's described in the next sentence in verse 2. Notice what it says. It says, And now Abel was the keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. It describes Abel and Cain. Now, if you take a look at the feud as it's beginning here to be descriptive for us in this sentence in verse 2, notice the positioning of the two boys. Who was born first? Cain. Who's mentioned first in this sentence? Abel. Now, think about that. Cain was first. He was the firstborn. He should have been mentioned first. And there's a lot of speculation among a lot of scholars as to the reality and the reason for that. But I'm convinced that the reason for that is because for some reason, Abel has a special dispensation as the younger child. Now, I'm the oldest in my family. And they learned on me. My youngest in our family, the youngest sibling was my sister. And as the oldest in the family, I always saw my sister as the youngest, as the spoiled one, the highly favored one. It's, it's true. Can I get a witness to all the older children in here? Can I, can I get an amen? Now, all you younger ones, just sit there and sit quiet, okay? And I can imagine that these two sons, as they are positioned in the scriptures, somehow conveys this understanding, this idea that there was something between Cain and Abel because he was the oldest, and Abel was the little baby brother that always had it easier. How do you know that? Well, look here at the profession of the two. What was Abel's profession? A shepherd. What was Cain's? A farmer. Now, this is before all the machinery we have today, so farming wasn't, in, wasn't easy. Ron is in this room. I used him as an example a while ago. His, his daughter and son-in-law were over there. When, when I laid the pipe in my backyard and front yard for my sprinkler system, Ron volunteered to help me, but he brought a machine with him called a ditch witch. And he was sitting behind the machine doing the ditch witch. And, and what was my job? To dig the dirt out of the ditch witch. Now, have you ever dug Kansas soil out of a, out of a trench? It's as hard as rocks. I don't know how we grow anything on this, Brother Denny. And when it gets hard, it's get hard. It's, anyway, farming had to be hard. And I can imagine Cain, while he's out in the field digging in some hard soil, saw his brother Abel over there sitting in some shade, chewing on some hay, watching the flock. Like I did with Ron. Going, Ron, you need to be down here digging this, not me. But it was his machine. I didn't know how to operate it. But anyway. Can you imagine that beginning to develop and, and, and some of that beginning to ensue in them early on in this relationship? I mean, Abel's mentioned first, and he has a better profession, and so the progression begins to escalate now in the beginning of this feud, this, this sibling rivalry that begins to escalate to the point that he carries us then to the cause that, that, that sort of makes the, the anger grow to the point that it, it just it's disastrous. So what's the cause for his anger to escalate to the point that it does? Notice in the verse now, in verse 3. In the course of time, as time begins to progress and the young men become men, it now comes, becomes time for the offering. And Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought to the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. There's an offering here. 
And an offering is a reflection of their devotion to, to God. And here we have Cain who brings an offering. Cain brings what he produces from the field. But notice he doesn't bring the first fruits. While Abel brings also his produce, which is livestock. And he presents the livestock. But notice it describes Abel's offering as the first fruits, as the best or the choices of the meat. Abel brings his best to God and offers it out of devotion and out of obedience to God, while Cain offers to him something less than demanded by God and deserved by God. I mean, both boys have been raised in church. They have been in Sunday school all of their lives. They knew what kind of offering as they watched their mom and dad bring sacrifices before God. They knew what was expected. And here, Abel does what is expected, and Cain offers less than what is required by God. So it's not surprising here that we see there are two very different responses to the offerings. One God accepts and one God rejects. God receives the offering of Abel. Why? Because it is the first fruits. It is the best. It is the first portion of that which he harvests or he gets from his livestock. While Cain offers not the first fruits, but more than likely the leftovers. Something that maybe he would not himself consume. But he offers something that is less than required by God, and God rejects his offering. And as a result of that, now there's an opportunity here that, that, that Cain has now to make restitution, to make reconciliation. He's failed in the offering. Now he is being given an opportunity to make restitution, to make reconciliation. But instead, notice his reaction. He gets angry. Notice the text. So Cain was not just angry, but the passage says very angry. Cain became very angry. Who is he angry at? Not at himself. He was angry at God, but he was also angry with his brother. He was extremely angry. And the word that is described here is a word in which the lid is coming off of the top of the emotions that he's been suppressing all of these years, and it begins to become released, and it's, it's released to the point where it is all vented out now. For the first time, it all comes out in the open to the point where he is incredibly angry. I mean, I can't begin to imagine or describe to you what he must have acted like. He was angry. Have you ever been angry to the point where you were out of control? He physically was displaying an anger that was visible to everyone, including himself, especially to God. He was venting. He was snorting. He was kicking. He was angry. But notice then the rebuke that God gives him. You know, sometimes I wish God would just leave us alone in our emotions, don't you? You know, we, we like to say, you know, God, I, I deserve to act like this. I deserve it. I want it. Just leave me alone. I'm angry, and I have every right to be angry, so don't come and talk to me about it. Just leave me alone. And God says, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. And we, we, do you think we get mad at God then? Well, God, don't ask me to get rid of my anger because I'm enjoying it way too much. We do that, don't we? And God gently comes to him. And the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? You think God asked that question because he doesn't know why he's angry? Of course God knows why he's angry. He's wanting him to step forward and confess. 
God then continues, if you do well, you will do not, you, you, <laughs> if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's knocking at the door. And it desire is for you. But you must rule over. You must exercise constraint. He's saying to, to Cain, I want you to reflect on the reason why you're angry. You're angry for no reason. There's no cause, no justification for your anger against your brother. It was you who failed, not, not him. So you have no cause, no justification. I think sometimes anger just looks for an outlet because it's angry about something here and it chooses to, to then act out over here. And anger sometimes will destroy those who have no idea why they're being destroyed and have no cause for our destruction. This is why. Reflect. God is saying, remember the standard that you were taught when you were a boy, the standard I gave to your parents when they taught you how to offer offerings to me, the first fruits. Remember, remember that? Reflect upon why you're not justified in your anger. Reflect on what and how you've been instructed. And then I want you then to repent of what you've offered. You failed to offer what I deserve and, and what I demand. So now I want you to repent and, and, and then reflect then, then a right life and return to me what is rightfully mine. Resist the temptation to hold back, to release it all to me. But Notice now the course of the anger. Instead of him uh, reconciling with God and coming clean with God, I want you to notice the progression of it. What's the course of the anger? How far does it go? It doesn't stop here. It, it should have been, you know, God, you're right. I'm reflecting on the reason I'm angry. I'm really angry at my brother for no cause. It's, it's no reason, no fault of his own. I repent. You're right. I, I remember what you told me to offer. I should have said, you know what? You're right. I didn't give you the best. Go back to my field. Get my first fruits. Bring an offering. Repent. And I could be reconciled with you and I wouldn't be angry with my brother. That's, that's the reaction that, that, it should have, that should have happened. But that's not what happens here. Notice what happens. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. He killed him. Now, don't overlook the fact that that was a trap that was calculated and that is set by Cain. This, this, this trap is, is premeditated. We have a brother who walks away from the sacrifice, from the offering, and as he's walking away, he's... <clears throat> and he's angry like that, and he's kicking up dust, and he's spitting out stuff, and he's angry, and he's fuming, and all of that. And then he begins to, in his quietness, in his in an isolation, begins to plot his brother's demise. And he sets a course of destruction. He, he plans it all out in his head. And not, not only does he plan it out, but he carries through in the plot, and he had it in his head. It's one thing to think something badly to happen to somebody. It's another thing to execute what you plotted out. Or how many times in our anger we said, you know, if I could just, bam, just one time. You ever thought that? Yeah. I mean, he thinks that. But now he carries it out. And, and notice there's this tragedy, this travesty that happens and this calculation here. He plots it out and he goes to his brother and he puts his arm around his brother. Hey, bro, I got something on the field, man. I want to show you. He, he acts friendly. There's... There's a, there's, a, there's a disguise here. There's, a, there's a, the defilement here. There's an act on his part in which he's, he's pretending to be his friend, but he's not really his friend. You ever felt like that around somebody? They, they display a friendliness and a, a likeness toward us, but they really want to destroy us. 
and they buddy up to you and say kind things and they want to take you somewhere and show you something really cool. That's what he did to his brother. And I can imagine the, the long walk out into the field. It probably wasn't very close by. And probably more than likely, Cain said, you know what? I better get my brother far enough away so that nobody witnesses this. I don't want mom and dad to see it. I don't want him to find his body, so I've got to take him out here. And so he calculated. It was a pretty lengthy walk. I can imagine as they were talking along the way, they were telling jokes and talking about childhood things and memories and that kind of thing. And completely unaware, Abel is following along with his brother, but his brother the whole time knows in the back of his brain exactly what he's going to carry out. And all of a sudden, at some point, we see here that he kills his brother. We're not told how he killed his brother. Was it with a knife? Was it with a spear? What, did he throw him over a cliff? Did he throw him in a, in a deep well like they did Joseph when his brothers wanted to do away with him, yet they sold him for a slave and just left him there to die? We don't know, but we do know the outcome. Abel dies and Cain walks away having fulfilled and executed his plan. Must have been a long walk home from that point, don't you think? He finally thinks, you know, I've succeeded. I've gotten rid of my nemesis. I've eliminated the competition, the competition, and now I'm king. And notice then the Lord then comes, and there's a tribunal. And in the tribunal, you notice in the tribunal, the Lord issues a direct question. I mean, God cuts to the chase. He goes to the quick. He says, where is Abel, your brother? Where is he? I mean, there's no, hey, how's it going, Cain? How's your day going? None of that. Just straight to the heart of the matter. Where is your brother? And notice how he seeks to deflect. He said, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, why are you asking me? I'm not my brother's keeper. He is my brother, but I'm not his keeper. I'm not his shepherd. I'm not responsible for him. And yet he is responsible for his brother. So he lies and he deflects the direction of the question. And then notice then the decisive verdict the verdict is brought about because of a testimony. Notice the testimony. God says, and the Lord says to him, what have you done? God knows. You see, Cain executed this plot in the privacy and the secrecy of the field that he was very familiar with, far away from everyone else, thinking that no one saw it and that he got away with it. But he doesn't get away with it. God sees it. I don't care where you hide or what you think you're doing in secret or what you think you're thinking and no one else knows, God always knows. You cannot escape the all-seeing eye of God nor the all-knowingness of God. God knows and he sees everything. How foolish it was for Cain to think that he could execute this plot and this plan that he conceived to murder his brother and God wouldn't know about it. Isn't that foolish? And yet we need to look in the mirror sometimes and think how foolish we are. To think that God doesn't see what we, what we do, doesn't know what we think, doesn't know what we feel. And notice he says, the voice of your brother, his blood, is crying to me from the ground. God hears the cry of the unjust punishment that Abel received from Cain because of no fault of his own. So here we have this beautiful testimony, and that's, that's the course of it. You know, you may say, well, what does this have to do with me? I've never really killed anybody. Well, anger can rise to the point that if we're not careful, it can be just as destructive. We can destroy someone's reputation by gossiping. We can destroy someone's character by slandering them. 
we can destroy a relationship by making things up. There are all different ways and means by which we, like Cain, can have the same damaging effect when we allow our anger to just spew out and to seek his vindictive course. But what are the consequences then to what happened? Consequences are pretty pretty frightening, and I don't think really Cain sat down for a minute and thought about it, but notice that now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to, its, to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Notice the curse. He was not only being blamed for the death of his brother, but he was now being burdened with more manual labor, a harder labor. He was going to be punished by working harder than when he had worked before. He had worked hard and he had seen the results of hard work, but now he was going to have to work even harder and was going to see less results. But also he was going to be banned and exiled from the family. He was going to be forced to leave the, the lifestyle that he was familiar with and had grown accustomed to. But notice he complains to God as a result of the curse. You ever complain to God? You ever say, God, this is not fair? This isn't right? With all the other things that other people are doing, why are you doing this to me? And that's what Cain does. This is not really... Uh, some plea. He's, he's not really repenting. He's complaining. Rather than looking at his heart and recognize and realize the reason he is where he is is because of his own condition and he needs to repent of it. He complains to God because of what God is about to do and he says to the Lord, he complains, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. He is surprised by the outcome. He never imagined that, that anything this harsh would be inflicted upon him. He thought he could do this to his brother and get away with it, and he was stunned that the life that he loved and the life that he knew and the freedom that he had and the abundance that he had would now be taken away from him. You know, whenever someone commits an act like this, they're always stunned that they lose some of the freedoms and some of the abundance they once had. Sin always has a way of taking away the blessing that we once knew. And he's scared. Why is he scared? I'm going to be out there on my own. And people may kill me. Well, God hears his complaint and God makes a concession. God then says to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. He's saying, All right, Cain, I'm going to make a concession. I'm going to protect you. You know, it's kind of funny that Cain is, is afraid that what he did to his brother is going to happen to him, isn't he? Well, they're going to kill me like I killed my brother. He said, no, no, I'll protect you. I'll protect you. I won't let that happen to you. I'll protect you. And I know that he knows that, that there's a thought in the back of his head that, that, okay, well, how can I be sure that God's going to protect me? Well, God says, not only am I going to protect you, but he provides a sign that he puts on his on his body so that as people see the sign, they're going to know this man is protected by God. But I think it's also a reminder to Cain that every time he sees his reflection, he's going to be reminded that God is protecting me because I'm sure that there are going to be times in which he's going to be out there wandering around on his own 
afraid for his life, and he's going to be, be, be thinking, is God, are you really protecting me? And he's going to see a reflection. And say, okay, the sign's still here. God's still protecting me. And so here we see this concession. Now, I, I think we need to, to be, be careful here because God is not changing his mind. While he is merciful and while he is gracious to Cain, he still inflicts the consequences of his sin. And notice the choice that Cain made. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He left the presence of God. God didn't leave him. He left the presence of God. And he sought a life among unbelievers, among pagans, among people and a people group that worship other gods other than Yahweh. And he embraced, I believe, their lifestyle. That was his choice. And so as we take a look at this text, what do we have to learn here? We've seen the exegetical and, and the discussion that's here in these two brothers. How does that relate to us in this concept of anger? What are some lessons that we can learn? How do I guard against the anger's, uh, the, the anger's destructive influence in and on my life? How do I avoid that? Well, there, there, are, there are five things that I want us to consider very quickly. We've got about five minutes, so I've got a minute on each. So buckle up, here we go. Number one, I need to consider the consequences. I think had Cain sat down before he executed the plot and thought, you know, this is going to happen to me if I do this. I'm not going to get away with it. And God's going to have to punish me. He's going to discipline me. Do you think he would have done what he did? I don't think he would have. So when, you're, when anger is at its peak and you're about to release all of this venom on somebody, think about the consequences of what you're going to do. It's going to have lasting impact not only in the relationship that you have with this person, but also in your relationship with God. And most of those consequences are irrevocable. You can't take it back. Once you let it out, once you say it, once you do it, it's done. And while people can forgive, they have a hard time forgetting. And sometimes we allow anger to be so destructive that we will destroy the relationships that we care about the most. And sometimes we destroy people that don't even have anything to do with it. We think we're vindicated and justified by doing it, but they don't even know why we're acting this way. Number two, we need to confess our inadequacies. I think we need to come to terms with our anger and our emotion I think, I think Cain, if he had sat down and thought for a moment, I'm out of control here. I can't handle this. I can't manage this. Sin, sin was knocking at the door, asking and inviting to come in and wanting to come in and putting the pressure on him. And he should have cried out to God, God, I'm, I, I have allowed anger to become bitter and this root of bitterness is, is surfacing. It's releasing in me. I have no control. I am, I am insufficient to control these emotions. And I think if we'll just simply step back and pray before we... Number three, we need to combat destructive tendencies. The tendency is, is to destroy. The tendency is to be destructive. We want to make them pay. We want to hurt them like they hurt us. We want to spew our venom. We want to vindicate our rights. We want to step on them. And those tendencies are not biblical. Which brings us to number four. We need to commit to the standards that God has given us. God has a lot to say about conflict in the Bible and how conflict is, is to be resolved between two people. There are passages in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, time and time again, God says how we're to relate to him and to each other. 
And we need to abide by those standards, as difficult as they may be from time to time, and as contradictory as they are to the feelings, to the emotions, and to the actions that we think we deserve to take. And then lastly, we need to choose the right response, which is God's response. And not respond in the heat of the moment, but step back to reflect upon these things and to then give the right response to the conflict that has arisen. There is a response to conflict, but it's never to be done with anger out of control. There is a thing called righteous indignation. There is a proper anger. Jesus had it, and he reflected it rightly. And so anger is a positive. It can be a good emotion as we respond to it rightly and not wrongly. So there's a right response and a wrong response to anger. So chances are you're going to get angry today. I said, chances are you're going to get angry today. Some of you are going to be silent in your anger, and you're not going to say anything about it. You're just going to let it fester. Some of you are going to let it out a little bit, but you're going to contain it, and you're not going to let all of that out, but you're going to try to suppress it. And then some of us in the room, sadly to say, if not today, but may tomorrow, we'll let the lid off, we'll let our tongues fly, and our actions flow, and the end result will be catastrophic consequences will hurt and damage the relationships and the people that we care the most about. And yet God says there's a solution to the conflict. There's a way to deal with anger. And I'm wondering if you're willing to say, Lord, I have a problem with my emotions sometimes, and I want to take these steps to correct them, to reconcile my relationship with you and with others, to live in a way that would be pleasing to you in how I deal with Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.